This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans and this edition has been funded by a grant from the Agnes Hunter Trust. Quite a lot of paediatric services are funded and set up up to their 16th birthday, but then a lot of adult services don't start until 18 years. So if you're a teenager with chronic pain, particularly in that sort of 16 to 18 age gap, where do you get your help from? Chronic pain affects 8% of young people in the 13 to 18 age range within the UK. And to put that into perspective, 15,000 of those live with arthritis, and that's just one condition. So in this edition of Airing Pain, I want to focus on what happens to the care and support for those with chronic pain conditions when, according to classification, they are neither child nor adult. So when does childhood stop and adulthood start? Dr Mary Rose is consultant in the pain management clinic at Edinburgh's Royal Hospital for Sick Children. Well, there's legal definitions in that you stop becoming a child at the age of 16, although you're able to give consent in Scotland from the age of 12 onwards. But practically, when we're managing children and young people, I think we recognise that there's a distinct group, particularly the 16 to 23 or 25-year-old age group. These are what I would consider young adults rather than children, and that they have very distinct needs from children. There's still a lot of psychosocial development going on between the ages of 16 and 23, and so that doesn't always fit very well with the model of care that we have. Dr Mary Rose, and that model of care to the outsider at least seems rather baffling. Dr Alison Bliss is consultant in paediatric anaesthesia and chronic pain at Leeds Children's Hospital. When our service was originally set up, we were funded for 16 years and quite quickly we realised that actually quite a lot of teenagers, that's the time when they develop pain, they had nowhere to go. So we expanded our service up to 18 years. And for the vast majority of those young people, we hope that while they spend their time with us, they learn the life skills and the self-efficacy and we help to address their problems so that pain doesn't go on to be a problem into their adult life. But there will be some young people for whom pain is a problem, we haven't got on top of it yet, they're going to need a bit of extra help and it's all about trying to make a joined up path so they know where they're going to get their help from, they know where they get their care from, who's going to support them as they move out of the children's services and into the adult services. Now it's interesting you use the word children's because the last thing a teenager would want to be called is a, a child. child. There's, there's enough going on in a teenager's mind from memory. Absolutely. It's the difference, isn't it, between the absolute horror of being sat in a waiting room full of snotty-nosed children with bits of coloured plastic sitting around everywhere or being sat in a waiting room full of old people looking at posters advertising walking aids and incontinence aids. You don't really fit into either of those worlds. But also, we know that teenagers who have chronic pain, because it's coming that crucial time when they're trying to find their sense of self there are a higher risk of doing risky things sometimes that can be from the the self-harming aspect of things where their moods are low but also in terms of social things for instance we know that there are a higher risk of having unprotected sex and not thinking through their tensions trying alcohol and drugs this is the time of life when it happens and so 
we've really got to engage with the young people and make sure that we stay engaged and that I can hand over to somebody who's also going to be engaged. Because if they feel like they're being, medicine is just dropping them, then they're less likely to come to appointments, they're less likely to take, follow advice, they're more likely to go off and undertake these risky behaviours. What's going on that sort of makes them do these risky things? I don't think anybody knows exactly what's driving that, but some of, there are some themes that we think are becoming really apparent. So we know that if you're in pain every day and there's nothing to see for it, there's that sense that you're not being believed and that makes you feel very isolated and alone. And if you have a condition that means that you can't keep up with your friends, you can't walk around town all day, you can't get out and do these activities, then, again, it's that sense of isolation. And sometimes it's desperation. People don't believe me. They don't know what I'm going through. I've got no other way of letting out these emotions. And so when I see the young people in my clinic, the first time I meet them, I meet them alongside my clinical psychologist. And a part of that consultation is thinking about the impact of pain on mood and how low that mood gets and whether, how they're coping with that and whether they're accessing any help and trying to pick out right from the start anyone who's at risk of those self-harm ideas and thoughts and whether there's anyone there to help support them through that. One of the things about being a teenager is actually you don't want mum yeah. sitting next to you when personal things are happening in your life. But you do need that support, but we'd like it to be invisible. Yes. One of the big things about being a teenager is that, it's that, that one time in your life when you're struggling to find your own sense of self and you desperately, desperately don't want to stand out from anybody else. And for teenagers with chronic pain, that's really hard because you have something that makes you disengage to a certain extent. You can't do the things that your friends can do, but they can't see a reason why. And then it's hard to talk about it to your friends, hard to talk about it at school or college. And so they go. quite a lot of our young people go through a lot of unnecessary suffering because they don't know how to share that information with the people around them to find the support they need and the independence they need at the same time. It's a mix of both things. It's hard for parents as well. It's very hard for parents, particularly for parents who've now got teenagers that started out as a younger child with a, with a chronic condition, where for a long time they'll have been working super hard, being the advocate for their child, making sure their child gets all the help they need. And sometimes accessing chronic pain services for children is quite tricky because there aren't so many of us around, so they may have had to battle for a long time. And then for us to turn around and say, and now it's okay to let go, that's a, that's a hard process. And it's about making sure that if we start that from the paediatric side of things, we've got a counterpart waiting to pick up and carry on that process on the other side. So we're becoming increasingly aware of it. But up until the last couple of years, it's really been patchy about what happens for these new adults. But is it as simple as that, that, you know, you finished one service, you're 17 on the Monday, you just turn up and say, where do we pick up from here? It's very difficult. We recognise that actually for a lot of our young people, it's not based on chronological age. It's about, you know, we see some 18-year-olds who are about to go, possibly go to university, but have been very much still in that sort of shared responsibility of the family. They're not used to making decisions by themselves. They've been in full-time education. They've been experiencing life as a, an older child. And for them, really, to say, that's it, off you go into adult land, that's quite hard. 
Whereas actually we've got some 16-year-olds who are already seeking independence. They've decided they're, they're moving out from school. They're going to college. Some of them are making plans to live independently, which they're allowed to do, and that's fine. And for them, actually, they are ready for adult services, possibly that little bit earlier. It's trying to find the right balance. And ultimately, what you can access in your area to a certain extent, depends on what you're funded for, and that's where we have problems. That's Dr Alison Bliss, consultant in paediatric anaesthesia and chronic pain at Leeds Children's Hospital. Dr Mary Rose again. As well as having to deal with with all the changes that everybody going through adolescence deals with, these young people are having to deal with the fact that they have a chronic disease that impacts on their ability to go to school and their ability to socialise with their peer group. Any young person, as they become an adolescent, they have an awful lot going on. <laughs> all the changes with puberty and the pushing the boundaries and risk-taking. Although I think there's a tendency for patients who have a chronic condition, sometimes they've been a bit held back, then they'll be less independent, less likely to be showing some of the age-appropriate behaviours. And so there's a degree of wanting to normalise that in the patients that we see. We do provide quite a, a sort of an ongoing service to them. They're able to contact the pain management nurses. They can phone up um, when they need to. And I think just by the nature of the pressure on adult services, that kind of ongoing availability of support isn't there. I think the adult services run more about they will a patient will be seen in the adult services and then generally advice given to their GP as to how, how they should be managed. So we're very aware of that when we are seeing young people and aware that they may transition onto adult services about making aware that the services will be different. An adult faced with issues, pain management issues, self-management issues, would think about things from an adult point of view, well hopefully a much more mature point of view. Mm -hmm. Getting over self-management messages, pacing and things like that, it's a bit more complex isn't it? It is, and I think that's key to what we do in the clinic. I think the most, one of the most important things that I do, rather than prescribing medicines or referring to physiotherapists, is, is giving the formulation and explaining the biopsychosocial model for pain. And that's how I draw in why self-management techniques work. And I'll give quite detailed explanations about pain transmission and why techniques such as relaxation and distraction and psychological therapies do have a role. Dr Mary Rose. Mandy Sim is pain nurse specialist at Edinburgh's Royal Hospital for Sick Children. So what are those self-management techniques and messages she reinforces to patients and parents? Medication's not a long-term answer. The use of relaxation techniques have to be practised. It's not something that you become good at straight away. So I would always encourage them to maybe build it into their nighttime routine so you're practising it, which might also have an impact on your sleep. But it also means that by practising these techniques that when you're having a bad day, you automatically go straight into these techniques and you're not having to overthink about how to do because you're busy thinking about that, but you're... Your mind's busy because you're sore, so it becomes second nature to them. So these techniques have to be practised. I think that's that's the big message. You know, this is not something that you're going to get through to these young people on their on your very first appointment with them. But we know these children sometimes for for a number of years. So you build up a relationship, you build up a rapport with them, 
and at that stage they're more likely to listen. So you're growing the relationship with them when they go to secondary mm -hmm. school and when they cease to become children and become young adults, you're actually growing with yeah, them? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not they come to clinic and then we don't have any contact with them again till the next clinic. You know, we pick up the phone, we saw you six weeks ago at clinic, how's the treatment that we introduced that time. There is a rapport building up, the families feel that you're interested in them because you're picking up the phone to find out how they're getting on. Um, with young people, ideally I try to speak to them directly rather than just going through the parents. So again, you've got that rapport and that relationship building with them. As was the other key, really important message is that you use self-management strategies and exercise regardless of whether the pain is there or not. We don't, you don't wait for the pain to go away and then start doing and these strategies are also their lifelong and they, they can support the young person not just with their pain but any stressful experiences in their life so sitting exams, sitting their driving tests, um, moving away from home. So these strategies that they're learning they're not just relevant for pain, they're relevant for so many things in their life. That was Mandy Sim. Now, within the biopsychosocial model for chronic pain, the two social environments a child spends most time in are home and school. Dr Lena Kass is a psychology lecturer at the University of Stirling's School of Natural Science. Her research interests are in the psychosocial aspects of children's pain. Children don't live with their pain on their own, they share it with their parents, uh, parents respond to their child's pain, but also children actually spend quite a lot of time in school, even when they're in pain. So we're looking at how teachers are dealing with that and how teachers can be supportive of a child who has chronic pain. So that's very interesting because most chronic pain conditions are invisible. And for these kids, um, that is a bit of a mixed bag because they do want to be like every other child. They don't want to be treated special. So the fact that pain is invisible is important in that sense. But on the other hand, because it is, is invisible when they really need help, it's also difficult sometimes to get help and to get hurt uh, because somebody is saying, but you were dancing yesterday and this morning you can't be in school and write your essay. So what's, what's going on there? So because it is invisible, it's also difficult to get hurt and to get help when they need uh, help. Children can live as normal life as possible, even if they have chronic pain. And it's actually important that we learn them to be normal children. And we call us learn them to be resilient. Um, and you can laugh if you have chronic pain. You can have joy. You can have pleasure. You can go out with uh, your friends. I think the most important thing for these kids with chronic pain is that we realize that they have to pace themselves more. So yes, they can go out a night, they can play with their friends, but probably the next day they'll have to rest and uh, do it more relaxing. And that's what we call pacing. They can't do it every single day. They're not having an extended amount of energy. They need to rest and compensate for if they went out with friends, for example. That's good advice, I'm sure, for the person with pain, for the child or adolescent with pain. Mm -hmm. But of course, it's two-way travel. The teacher, what should they know? We interviewed eight teachers across seven different schools to see what they want to know. Like they had all experience at least uh, for having a child in their classroom with chronic pain for at least one year. And we asked them, what would you want to know? What were you missing to help that child in an effective way? And they do say training. We need to know practical tips on how to handle the chronic pain in the classroom uh, because... 
the main thing that teachers now do is they pick up the phone, call the parent and say the child is really not feeling well um, and you need to come pick it up and take it home. But they do realize that's actually detrimental, that is negatively affecting their academic performance, but also their ability to engage uh, with their peers and have social interactions and learn from those social interactions. So they really want to be trained on helping those children with chronic pain. And I think one thing is to learn them that it is invisible and you can't always immediately see what's going on so that you really need to check in with the child every now and then how you're doing. And that pacing, that it isn't because yesterday the child was looking well and was uh, taking part in the gym class that the next day it will be the same the next day can be entirely the opposite so I think learning teachers that it can switch in a second and switch quite quickly for a child with chronic pain is one of the important things to learn them. As you said a child or a teenager an adolescent wants to appear normal but there's always the danger that having coached the teacher, if you like, how to deal with this, he or she is pulling that child out of the normal, inverted commas, the normal group Mm -hmm. and setting them elsewhere. Yeah, that is a tricky balance to find. Um, One example was, for uh, instance, a child that we spoke to who had juvenile idiopathic arthritis and had difficulties walking up the stairs. So the school allowed her to use the elevator but she rather crawled up the stairs than use the elevator because she was the only child in her class allowed to use the elevator and she didn't want to stand out. So it's finding that tricky balance. And I think from the interviews we did with the teachers, they had actually a quite um, nice suggestion I hadn't thought of that the teachers have a curriculum that they have to teach. They have a whole lot of the biology they need to address, uh, geographic things, uh, history. And they were like, why don't we have a curriculum about pain, a whole set of materials that we can put in the curriculum and teach the whole class about pain and about what chronic pain is and that children can actually also get chronic pain and that children also can get juvenile idiopathic arthritis, that that's not just a disease for old people. Then they were like, you kind of pay attention to the child. You don't have to point the child out, but you address chronic pain in the entire classroom and it's part of the curriculum and everybody is learning about chronic pain and how to deal with chronic pain. And I think all children can benefit from it. And so you're addressing kind of the needs of the child, the chronic pain, without pointing the child out and having it stand out of the class. And when we were talking with the teacher, I was like, that's brilliant. I hadn't thought of that before. Well, it is a fantastic idea, but I think many teachers would say, yes, it's a fantastic idea, but this is just another burden on the overcrowded curriculum. But in the one sense, it would indeed, it's already a very busy curriculum, but now they have to address the child with chronic pain or have to address the needs of the child with chronic pain in addition to that overcrowded curriculum. So they were saying probably something has to make space for adding that to the curriculum. Fair enough. Everything is important. (laughs) Um, So there's always making that balance. But now it's coming into addition and it's there anyway. And the teachers realize that there's more and more kids with pain or with disabilities in the classroom. And it's more and more prevalent and it will become probably more and more prevalent in the future. So they feel like that is the one thing that might be possible to address it now because now it comes into addition of that busy curriculum. Dr Lena Cass of Stirling University in Scotland. That particular study of hers was done with primary school teachers, but the results do concur with other studies involving secondary schools. Now, 
pain education in schools is not as fanciful as you might think. Mandy Sim, as pain nurse specialist at Edinburgh's Royal Hospital for Sick Children, is at the front line of the coalface, if you like, of support for the pain management clinic. And the front line does indeed reach into her patients' classrooms. It is giving them support to cope with the changes that they're going through, supporting them with being able to engage with their peer group, with, with education, supporting the schools to understand what the physical condition is, what the needs of the, the young person are, and being able to put things into place to support that child to get into school, to get their education, to get their peer group and get them socialised so they can become the young adults that they're going to become. So you're talking to the world around the young adult? Yeah, absolutely. So involving parents, involving the school, other community services available and sometimes even the peer group, so I have been known to go into the class and speak to the class about about chronic pain, how it affects young people, how they behave when they've got pain and some of the treatments that we use to help them manage their chronic pain. So what would you tell them? I speak to the young person who's concerned and say, do you want your peer group to know that it's you know, that I know you or am I just coming out as this is my my role? So I will explain what my role is, talk about chronic pain, try to engage the class to get them to see so what sort of things might cause pain, how might I know, has somebody got pain? So it's a very two-way session that I do and then look at things that we would do to provide, you know, some pain relief for the, for the young person and to get them into school and hopefully to get their peer group to understand that you don't have to have a plaster on your arm or you don't have to have a scar to have pain. It might be something that's quite invisible, but actually you could have pain that's there every single day. I remember talking to a friend who's a wheelchair user and her showing me around her old school things that I thought were absolutely fine simple things like timetabling. You could be in room one for something and, and then your next lesson will be in room 10 yeah. and nobody has taken into account mm -hmm. the one stair that you have to get through. So the whole aspect of dealing with people with physical disabilities has to be rethought. So we, we look at things like getting out of class early so they're missing the hustle and bustle in the corridor potentially having a buddy that can support them through the corridors, maybe having two sets of books, so they've got a set of books that's at home and a set of books that's in class, so they're not having to carry books back and forth. So there can be lots of what we perceive as quite simple fixes, but it makes a huge difference to the young person. It takes a lot of thought, and yet again, not a lot of thought mm -hmm. to sort these things out. Yeah, and it's that that face-to-face -face or that telephone communication with the teacher and that I'm phoning from the pain clinic, I'm phoning from the hospital, that opening line of the communication makes such a difference to the young person that they've got that level of support. I think a really important message that you get across is that um, these young people can have good days and bad days as well, which we sometimes find the schools struggle to understand why a young person one day can do lots, lots of things, but then for the next few days that they can't. It seems to me that young people might get better treatment in that respect from the, we talk about biopsychosocial, from the social aspect. Young people may get better treatment than adults. Uh, yeah, I, 
I think, from, from the, the social and engaging with their peer group and education. Yeah, I don't know what goes on in adult services, but I would possibly agree. <laughs> well, for somebody with chronic pain, uh, I have chronic pain. The thought of somebody coming in and explaining to my friends and colleagues and, uh, and my bosses what is going on would have been very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. And the feedback that we get from both the schools, from the young person concerned and from the parents, they very much appreciate that on the coalface front, you know, coming out and speaking to people um, and being visible. They find that very helpful. That was Mandy Sim. Here's Dr Alison Bliss, consultant in paediatric anaesthesia and chronic pain at Leeds Children's Hospital again. Our adolescents, they're a group in their own right and we need to up our game really. So how do you do that? It's about trying to make it a process. So we're now starting to change the environment that we see these young people in, giving them information right from the start to sort of say, it's okay for you to spend a bit of time with us, you know, without mum and dad there. We can split our consultation so that you can come talk to me by yourself or talk to our nurse by yourself and then we'll join mum and dad in and help manage things on because when you go out into adult land you'll be asked to go in by yourself and your amount of support you get from your parents is going to lessen. That's Dr Alison Bliss in Leeds Children's Hospital. What about Edinburgh? Dr Mary Rose? We would definitely continue to see them whilst they remain in sort of full-time school education so we're happy to see them up to 18. If we get a new referral for a patient age 17 or so we think well if we see them, they're not going to stay in our service very long. So we may prefer them to start their journey in adult services, which we realise is, is quite tough for these young people. So when we do transition, we will always make contact with the adult chronic pain service, first of all. And, and there are, certainly within Edinburgh, there's one of the consultants has an interest in young people in this age group, and also one of the psychologists does as well. So we'll be in touch with them before, and we'll do a joint appointment as, as the first appointment as well so that we can be clear about the purposes of, of the transition what we're expecting from transition and so that the young person and their family feels supported when when they do start attending adult services. Having as you said sort of grown with these young adults from possibly a very early age they might feel cocooned and loved and that carpet is taken away from them that that lovely feeling yeah and it's something that we've been very aware of from we've kind of probably grown with over the years and as we're getting closer to that transition we are maybe there's slightly less phone calls we're just trying to promote a bit more self-management so they're not going from phone calls with the pain team every six weeks to off you go into adult services so it's almost like letting your child go. You're just giving them a little bit more, uh, more independence and, um, yeah, managing their own symptoms a little bit more. We're we're there in the background. You can contact us if there's any problems, but just giving that a little bit more independence as we're coming up to transition. That's Mandy Sim, pain nurse specialist at the Royal Hospital for Sick Children in Edinburgh. Now, as always, I have to read you the small print that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being, 
he or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. And don't forget that you can download all editions of Airing Pain, and this is number 99, from Pain Concerns website, which is painconcern.org.uk. And there you'll also find Pain Concerns extensive resources of support and information leaflets, self-management videos, our forum and much, much more. Once again, it's painconcern.org.uk. And do follow us on Twitter, Facebook and other social media platforms for the latest news and information. Now, I just want to end this edition of Airing Pain with advice for parents whose children, or are they adults? Anyway, young adults as they leave paediatric services. Doctors Alison Bliss and Mary Rose. There are some things that you need to support them and let them do these things from themselves and give them that little bit of independence as they're going along and that's hard it's hard when you've had a child with a chronic condition a teenager with chronic pain are often a lot more dependent on their parents than the typical teenager and it's it's being able to find that right balance to support the young person as they gain increasing dependence and also to support the parents to say at times, it's OK to let go. It's hard being a parent anyway if your child doesn't have a chronic condition. <laughs> so I think, it, yeah, I recognise it must be even harder for parents of children and young people with chronic conditions to let them go and to encourage them to become more independent. But it's the right thing <laughs> for them to achieve their full potential.